始めgentlemen this is general lance accompanied as always by his uh, trusty knight at arms sergeant barnes and uh, today i kind of wanted to come back and harp on something in specific which i think is remiss to many of us westerners especially but is something counterintuitive to human nature as a whole and um I'll say this, uh, I would say that it's a topic in which, before I had encountered it, I was not even cognizant of how petty or effeminate, in the archaic term of the sense of the word, right, I was about when it came to leadership or how we were supposed to interact with the world around us, um, how much agency one has um, what does that practically mean? How does that apply, not just, of course, to politics or whatever, but even to your teams, to your family, to your community, to to the world in your immediate vicinity, within your sphere of influence? I believe it's something that most of us are uneducated on by consequence of, of course, the fact that in the West we are raised, quote-unquote, by women. Most households nowadays come from broken families, and even when they are united, uh, if, especially in the West, because of this um, gynophilia, uh, men defer to their wives, and so there's a stronger impetus there. And because, structurally speaking, women have way more control over their family and themselves than the male does. Two, primary and secondary education are fundamentally dominated by women, or rather it's not even to say dominated, it's really subverted because it's not outright dominated. It's something that was given away, it wasn't taken. Then three, of course, is the feminization of the military forces in general, which is, of course, this concept that has been increasingly prevalent, um, which completely undermines the idea of a forceful principle or even the concept of tough love or uh, fatherly love. Even in the military, there's this terminology where in spite or rather instead of paternal leadership. So in the Marine Corps, it used to be in officer manuals that leadership was uh, paternally guided. Uh, that is how Lejeune, a commandant of the Marine Corps, explained to his uh, junior officers the exact modus operandi, how to treat your not just your peers as uh, fellow officers, but as those in your charge, look after them as your sons. But now, instead of that, there's this label called servant leadership. And remember, a servant is just another term for slave. You're not being a leader by being a slave. And that causes a lot of ruptures and... Um, misformations of how leadership or teamwork is supposed to work. And worst of all, of course, is individualism. And now, don't have me wrong here. I'm, I'm not counter-signaling the, the importance of the individual because I think it's, the individual is, is very important. He is an agent aspect of society, of his own soul. However, I think it's remiss to think that we should think one or the other. The ancient Greeks made this delineation where you were an individuated part of a whole. You were Timuleon of Cor uh, Corinth. You were, you know, uh, you were Aegis II of Sparta. You were of something. You were not just this isolated, atom atomized individual. And all of the above mentioned 
currents of culture have downstream effects, which cause us to break apart, right, into our atomic parts, cause us to be the playthings of those who have teams, who are able to coordinate and work together. Because remember, the team is stronger than the individual. And there's a reason why they push this, right? Because ultimately, if you think effeminately, if you think individually, ultimately, it's the uh, classic maxim, uh, divide and conquer. Well, there is no smaller minority than the individual. There is no more vulnerable uh, political sphere or party than one person. A person becomes truly indomitable when they form part of a team. But what does that mean necessarily? What does it mean to actually work with a team? What does it mean to lead someone? Now, of course, being a leader is predicated on competence, on stature, both physical bearing and so on, and courage and all the, the manly virtue that is expected of a leader. But it's also expected to be... Um, how do you say, the leader of a wolf pack, right? To, to guide people in your charge to be the best versions of themselves, to help them reach beyond themselves, to overcome their weaknesses together, to help guide them, and in so doing also better yourself. Now that's a very long introductory saying, and the implications of which are something that I'll go into on a different transmission. However, I think it's important because I was looking through the different channels and different transmissions and radio broadcasts and uh, enemy coordination and so on, and all the intelligence I've gathered here. And I think a lot of our issues stem from our lack of agency, our lack of teamwork, and our lack of understanding how to lead. And so, without further ado, I'd like to broach the subject of this transmission, and that is Extreme Ownership, of course, by Jocko Willink. And I know I can already hear, oh, that's cringe, and a lot of his followership is extremely cringe. I totally understand that. However, what I would like to explain to you is that cast that all aside, cut off all the BS that's around him. The guy is, first of all, a great warrior. He's a Navy SEAL dude, obviously, squared away. However, on top of all that, he breaks down the essence of leadership in a way that's unprecedented since time eternal because, it was, because a lot of these elements of leadership were things that were intuited before him and now have to be explicated because we have lost that cultural knowledge since... Basically, cultural Marxism has rotted away the essence of what leadership is, which is patriarchal tough love, right? And that tough love is not just directed outwards, but principally inwards, towards oneself, towards to be, in the Greek ideal of the term, a tyrant over oneself, which is to say an absolute control of oneself and therefore exude that order for those friends, family, and teammates to graft onto and to become better for them. This is the Roman way of thinking. This is how legions conquered the Roman Empire. This is how great things happen. And I believe if we re-imbibe this core ethos, it is something that we'll be able to reclaim. And it's something that we would be able to dip into the past and pour it into the future and therefore seize it. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read. This book is great. It has 12 different points. However, in this transmission alone, I'll be focusing on the thing that is about centered on ourselves. It's the attitude that I think is important we should imbibe. And so I'll keep it brief and short because I believe if we go on too far, it'll be beyond the scope of this transmission, but it will be not as hard hitting as it should be. So without further ado, this is... Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. And we'll go on four different specific points of the word ethos that I think each of you should imbibe. Of course, I believe every one of you should actually buy this book. You should read it. You should reread it. 
You should keep on reading it. In fact, I've read this book, Reveille, four times. And a number of times I've taken the paradigm with which it gives us and I've used it to analyze not just books and other accounts of military accounts, but also politics and also other things that surround us in our life. All right, boys. So the first topic we're going to break down is this one called extreme ownership. Now, the book is called that, but this is the first one. Now, I'm going to read with you the principle, and then we'll discuss it right after. And we'll do this in that format for the next four different principles. So stand by. I'm reading from Jocko now. On any team, in any organization, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his world. There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. The best leaders don't just take responsibility for their job. They take extreme ownership of everything that impacts their mission. This fundamental core concept enables SEAL leaders to lead high-performing teams in extraordinary circumstances and win. But extreme ownership isn't a principle whose application is limited to the battlefield. This concept is the number one characteristic of any high-performance winning team in any military unit, organization, sports team, business, or family. When subordinates aren't doing what they should, leaders that exercise extreme ownership cannot blame the subordinates. They must first look in the mirror at themselves. The leader bears full responsibility for explaining the strategic mission, developing the tactics, and securing the training and resources to enable the team to properly and successfully execute. If an individual on the team is not performing at the level required for the team to succeed, the leader must train and mentor that underperformer. But if that underperformer continually fails to meet standards, the leader who ex exercises extreme ownership must be loyal to the team and the mission above any individual. If underperformers cannot improve, the leader must make the tough call to terminate them and hire others who can get the job done. It is all on the leader. As individuals, we often attribute the success of others to luck or circumstances and make excuses for our own failures and the failures of our team. We blame our own poor performance on bad luck, circumstances beyond our control, or poorly performing subordinates, anyone but ourselves. Total responsibility for failure is a difficult thing to accept, and taking ownership when things go wrong requires extraordinary humility and courage. But doing just that is an absolute necessity to learning, growing as a leader, and improving a team's performance. Extreme ownership requires leaders to look at an organization's problem through the objective lens of reality, without emotional attachments to agendas or plans. It mandates that a leader set an ego aside, accept responsibility for failures, attack weaknesses, and consistently work to build a better and more effective team. Such a leader, however, does not take credit for his team's successes, but bestows that honor upon his subordinate leaders and team members. When a leader sets such an example and expects this from junior leaders within the team, the mindset develops into the team's culture at every level. With extreme ownership, junior leaders take charge of their smaller teams and their piece of the mission. Efficiency and effectiveness increase exponentially and a higher performance winning team is the result, end quote. So let's just break it down there. This is something that I think really goes remiss in modern society because a lot of the incentive structures, especially if you're in the civilian world or if you're in school, for instance, where if you got in a fight or if you're even defending yourself, you also get suspended even though the aggressor is uh, the one initiating the violence, right? Or if you're in a business or, you know, X, Y, or Z, um, blaming others is a way of escaping ne negative externalities. And in a lot of ways, that's a failure on them. You have to understand that it, we as individuals, 
We who have sovereign agents and will, we are the ones that bear responsibility. It might not be our fault, but it's our responsibility to fix it. This applies to our country. This applies to military, family leadership, and so on. Of course, this has to be balanced. You have to understand that when I say this, I'm not trying to get you to assume that it's your fault. However, many of the things we attribute to others are primarily the concern of our own. And a lot of people say, well, you know, this is impossible. There's nothing I could do, et cetera, Y, Z. You know, it was basically a tsunami. It was insurmountable. But mind you, remember, I don't know if you ever saw this, but there was a tsunami that happened in Japan, and there's this one freaking fisherman who wanted to save his boat and his crew and the livelihood of his family. And you know what he did? He took his goddamn boat, and he drove right at the tsunami and crested that wave. He took extreme ownership, courage, and the will to succeed over a tsunami when most were not courageous, when most shirked from the challenge. That's extreme ownership. And the same can be attributed to our nation or even Western civilization. You know, we blame, we blame uh, oligarchs for selling out our country. We blame Marxists for subverting it. We blame our parents for breaking up and breaking up our family. We blame our kids for not being up to snuff. But remember, legionaries, it's us. It's our fault. And there's always one more thing you can do to influence a situation to have a positive result. You're never out. Halmore said this. He said, you know, three strikes and you're not out, right? There's always one more thing you can do. Never give up. Have the integrity and the intestinal fortitude to take losses on the chin and keep pushing because you can't lose. No defeat is final. Only the ones that you keep on pushing for and succeeding and trying and fighting and tugging at the fucking rope. Those are the ones that you'll win. History is replete with stories of small numbers of men with extraordinary will to turn the battle in their favor. I'll give you an example from military history, specifically in the campaigns of Alexander the Great by Arian. I'll paraphrase here, but basically, Alexander was kicking ass, right? He conquered the Persian Empire, and finally, he was in the backlands of the wilderness of Afghanistan, which was back then called Bactria. There's this big city on a cliff. It was a massive cliff. I mean, it, it's still present today. It's like two miles up or something like that of sheer rock with one avenue of approach. It was perfect. And the Sogdians at that time were taunting Alexander. Alexander, however, needed to subdue this vital outpost because if he wasn't able to conquer this tribe, his entire eastern flank of his kingdom would be under constant turmoil because if one tribe, this preeminent tribe in Afghanistan, was not conquered, then it would give hope to those that he recently conquered that they could also be, see, they, they attack me. They put freaking mosquitoes in my goddamn mouth. They could basically upend the eastern satraps' control from Macedonian rule. And so what he did instead was send 300 picked men. And this was before the time of mountaineering and all this special equipment and special little things that we have, and the special little shoes and the special little clothing that we have. And basically he, he had them at the beginning of the night climb up the sides of this ravine of this fortress on the mountainside. And it was snowing and it was hailing. It was in the middle of a thunderstorm. And he offered basically 10 years wage for the first 12 men who summited the peak. And they climbed all night. They climbed all night. And 30 of them never returned. 30 of them fell to their fate and never were recovered. However, through extraordinary will and emphasis on, on teamwork, on extreme ownership, they were able to summit the top 
conquer the gates and let in the main host, conquering the Sogdian stronghold and thus the entirety of the region of Bactria. And coincidentally, this is where, to cement his uh, alliance with the local potentate, uh, he married Roxanne. It was through this extraordinary effort that Alexander the Great was able to go further into India and make conquests of his own in the Punjab. Now, if he hadn't exercised this extreme ownership, if he hadn't exercised this extreme leadership, uh, determination of willpower, understanding his men, of equipping them with what they need, motivation, with his own willpower, his own confidence, we wouldn't have known Alexander the Great to have been as great as he was. Now, of course, these two examples I've given you are extreme, but it's the small victories every day, the small things that our team does every day that we must give honor to, just as Alexander gave honor to the 300 men who climbed that fortress, or the Japanese fishermen who overcame great odds and saved his crew and the livelihood of his family and served as a symbol of Japanese strength, willpower. Great things are possible. I don't want to go too deep into it, but I'll have links in the description below for further reading if you want to explore these examples yourself and read them. Continuing on. Second principle. And now this is the words, these are the words of Leif Babin. Principle. No bad teams, only bad leaders. About Face, The Odyssey of an American Warrior by Colonel David Hackworth, U.S. Army, retired, influenced many frontline leaders in the SEAL teams and throughout the military. The lengthy memoir details Colonel Hackworth's military career, combat experiences in Korea and Vietnam, and his myriad leadership lessons learned. Although a controversial figure later in his life, Hackworth was an exceptional and highly respected battlefield leader. In the book, Hackworth relates the philosophy of his U.S. Army mentors who fought and defeated the Germans and Japanese in World War II. There are no bad units, only bad officers. This captures the essence of what extreme ownership is all about. This is a difficult and humbling concept for any leader to accept, but it is an essential mindset to building a high-performance winning team. When leaders who epitomize extreme ownership drive their teams to achieve a higher standard of performance, they must recognize that when it comes to standards, as a leader, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. When setting expectations, no matter what has been said or written, if substandard performance is accepted and no one is held accountable, if there are no consequences, that poor performance becomes the new standard. Therefore, leaders must enforce standards consequences for failing need not be immediately severe, but leaders must ensure that tasks are repeated until the high expected standard is achieved. Leaders must push the standards in a way that encourages and enables the team to utilize extreme ownership. The leader must pull different elements within the team together to support one another, with all focused exclusively how to best accomplish the mission. One lesson from Bud's crew, excuse me, from the Bud's cr boat crew leader example above is that most people, like boat crew number six, want to be part of a winning team. Yet, they often don't know how or simply need motivation and encouragement. Teams need a forcing function to get the different members working together to accomplish the mission, and that is what leadership is all about. Once a culture of extreme ownership is built into the team at every level, the entire team performs well, and performance continues to improve. Even when a strong leader is temporarily removed from the team, on the battlefield, preparation for potential casualties plays a critical role in the team's success. If a key leader should go down, but life can throw any number of circumstances in the way of any business or team, and every team must have junior leaders ready to step up and temporarily take on the roles and responsibilities of their immediate bosses to carry on the team's mission and get the job done if, if and when the need arises. 
Leaders should never be satisfied. I read this again. Leaders should never be satisfied. They must always strive to improve and they must build that mindset into the team. They must face the facts through a realistic, brutally honest assessment of themselves and their team's performance. Identifying weaknesses, good leaders seek to strengthen them and come up with a plan to overcome challenges. The best teams anywhere, like the SEAL teams, are constantly looking to improve, add capability, and push the standards higher. It starts with the individual and spreads to each of the team members until this becomes the culture, the new standard. The recognition that there are no bad teams, only bad leaders, facilitates extreme ownership and enables leaders to build high-performance teams that dominate on any battlefield, literal or figurative. End quote. And that was Leif Babin. Now, in the above-mentioned example, he talks about his experience at Bud's and how there are a number of different boat teams, right? They're basically doing physical fitness standards tests with very intricate uh, reasons. So basically, the instructors would tell every boat team boat team captain, hey, you have to tell, your team has to row out to the buoy, you have to go around three times, um, you have to all dump out, go back in, and then get back to the team, uh, back to shore. Or something like that. Something, every time it's variable, every time it's complicated. The crux of the exercise is not simply that it is physically exhausting, but under those, those experiences of physical exhaustion through that that trial that the leader is able to cognitively perform under those circumstances, force his team members, inspire them to achieve that same physical standard as well as achieve the mission they have set out to do and return and be first. Now, the parable, of course, is that boat team two was always consistently performing well. It was always coming in first or near first for every single performance. Now, the other added bit is that if you're the last team, you're given suffering, penance. Basically, you were punished for being last. So it pays to be a winner. Boat Team 6 was consistently in last place. The instructors at that time, what they chose to do was basically this. They chose to, how do you say, switch the boat team leaders, so the officer in charge of each team, and see how it would shake up, right? So maybe it was, uh, for the instructors, maybe, maybe it was the people that sucked, or at least that was the conceit of boat team six original leader. And they changed. And as time went on, boat team six was always in first. And so the only thing that changed was the leadership, not the crew. So reflect on that. Effectively, what it's doing is telling you that it's not the crew members itself that are at fault. It's the leader. And this bears out, for instance, in the Pareto uh, distribution of skill. Now, you think of this as the bell curve, but this also applies to um, labor as far as in an organization who is responsible for the most amount of work done. There are a number of different studies which show in a corporate setting um, that the first top 1% do almost 50% of the entire business's work and the rest do an ever smaller amount. Now, what this should show you is that the superpower of any military outfit as well as any team in general is the leader. It's he who is able to connect with his subordinates to give them hard intermediate goals to achieve and ultimately pull through to the end. That is the X factor and why leadership is the superpower of all human beings. Leadership, great men are what makes the difference. And so this is important to know because a lot of Marxist thinking or materialist thinking wants to think that the mass is what is the cause for greatness and success of the whole. When the reality is, it's leaders who are the ones that bridge the impossible with the possible. The ones that are able to scale the mountains 
like Alexander the Great did with his men, who told them those things that they thought hard or impervious were surmountable. And he gave them the tools, the equipment, the motivation, um, the instructions, the necessity, and the impetus, the will, the confidence to succeed. Of course, many of us won't be in buds, although mo most of us are in the military, have been in the military, so we understand a similar parable. But like I said in this transmission, every man who is worth his salt is a warrior. Okay? And so ultimately, I'll give you another example of how basically teams are the effect of a leader and not the other way around. So Napoleon, in his first campaigns in Italy... He was faced with an Austrian army. And remember at this time, and this is in the 1780s, 90s, and the turn of the century, the preeminent military combat potential of that world was amongst the best were, of course, the Prussians and then the Austrians. The Austrians had a standing army with decked out latest top-of-the-line equipment, discipline, and uh, formations, etc., Napoleon was given a basically a conscript force of average citizens with no shoes on their feet. Their pants were ragged, their clothes, they were starving, they weren't well supplied, they weren't well fed, they weren't well uh, munitioned, if that makes sense. And so what was the X factor? Why is it that Napoleon, when he went to Italy, was able to destroy a numerically superior enemy, a qualitatively superior force, a force who was more secure in their raison d'etre than some rando podunk farmer that got conscripted into this force the French had, right? Well, that X factor was Napoleon. In the words of Napoleon, a leader is a dealer in hope. A leader is a dealer in hope, a dealer in willpower, a dealer in self-confidence. And this is another thing that Leif Babin references as well is, uh, you know, uh, Colonel David Hackworth. Uh, he was in charge of uh, an initial unit, which he called the Raiders, but they were all raised from the line. They weren't necessarily exceptional in who they were. They were picked men, of course. He chose them, but he chose them not because they were physically exceptional or something. It's because they had drive. And that's what a leader imbibes. A leader expects and tolerates only the exceptional, and therefore his men rise to the occasion. And that's precisely what happened in the campaigns of Napoleon in northwestern Italy. So he defeated the Austrians in detail by using superior speed of maneuverability to basically defeat in detail the Austrian army, who were a lot slower and a lot more lethargic and rising to the occasion, and basically leveraging his foot soldiers as almost like foot cavalry. He was forced marching them, making them bridge the impossible with the possible, and ultimately reduced the major Austrian fort at Modena and conquered northern Italy and forced to terms the Austrians at the final bit of his uh, campaign in 1798. I highly recommend his campaigns in general. Napoleon is obviously, by every metric, the best general of all time next to Alexander the Great. But it's not so much that you should be looking at his exact tactics. Of course, you should read all of it. You should imbibe as much as you can learn, know as much as you can. However, it's the ephemeral, unknown aspect of that leader that makes it so possible. It's that energy and that willpower. And it's the extreme ownership. Is that Napoleon took it upon himself to make things change, to make it happen. When things were lacking, he didn't go pointing fingers like his peer generals were doing before him. In fact, that's how he rose up out of the ranks from a lowly lieutenant and shot straight up to Brigadier General, is because he didn't let his superiors or those under his command or those parallel adjacent to him in force be an obstacle to his success. He found a way 
outside the box, outside the perimeters that he was allowed. Sometimes he even broke the rules, stepped outside of them to make it happen, and obviously not to the detriment of the whole. So basically he was breaking the rules, though he was scoring successes to the benefit of the greater team. Does that make sense? So he wasn't breaking the rules for his personal benefit. He was breaking the rules that benefited the entirety of the army and the military and the French campaign in the south of France. Now, of course, when you're in the military, especially now, I highly recommend you don't. You do what you can to always stay within the left and right parameters that are set before you by your superiors and by the rules and regulations. Or if you're you know, a civilian, same thing. However, it is incumbent upon you, the leader, to do what is necessary to win. Because if you fail, or rather, if your team fails, don't be pointing your finger at anyone else aside from yourself. And once you can do that, that is the first step to figuring out how to make your men better. And therefore, you and your greater team, by proxy, by proxy the best. And that's what here at Lance's Legion I'm trying to do, is trying to teach you guys, you legionaries, to be team leaders, to be successful, and to get the highest glory by being selfless, and by taking that responsibility upon yourself, to have the energy. And remember, energy is always a choice. Third precept, Jocko Willink, believe. I'm quoting Extreme Ownership now principle. In order to convince and inspire others to follow and accomplish a mission, a leader must be a true believer in the mission. Even when others doubt and question the amount of risk, asking, is it worth it? The leader must believe in the greater cause. If a leader does not believe, he or she will not take the risk required to overcome the inevitable challenges necessary to win. And they will not be able to convince others especially the frontline troops who execute the mission, to do so. Leaders must always operate with the understanding that they are part of something greater than themselves and their own personal interests. They must impart their understanding to their teams down to the tactical level operators on the ground. Far more important than training or equipment, a resolute belief in the mission is critical for any team or organization to win and achieve big results. In many cases, the leader must align his thoughts and vision to that of the, of the mission. Once a leader believes in the mission, that belief shines through to those below and above in the chain of command. Actions and words reflect belief with a clear confidence and self-assuredness that is not possible when belief is in doubt. The challenge comes when that alignment isn't explicitly clear. When a leader's confidence breaks, those who are supposed to follow him or her see this and begin to question their own belief in their mission. Every leader must be able to detach from the immediate tactical mission and understand how it fits into the strategic goals. When leaders receive an order that they themselves question and do not understand, they must ask the question, why? Why are, why are we being asked to do this? Those leaders must take a step back deconstruct the situation, analyze the strategic picture, and then come to a conclusion. If they cannot determine a satisfactory answer themselves, they must ask questions up the chain of command until they understand why. If frontline leaders and troops understand why, they can move forward, fully believing in what they are doing. It is likewise incumbent on senior leaders to take the time to explain and answer the questions of their junior leaders so that they too can understand why and believe. Whether in the ranks of military units or companies and corporations, the frontline troops never have as clear an understanding of the strategic picture as senior leaders might anticipate. It is critical that those senior leaders impart a general understanding of that strategic knowledge, the why, to their troops. In any organization, goals must always be in alignment. If goals aren't aligned at some level, the issue must be addressed and rectified. 
In business, just as in the military, no senior executive team would knowingly choose a course of action or issue an order that would purposely result in failure. But a subordinate may not understand a certain strategy and thus not believe in it. Junior leaders must ask questions and also provide feedback up the chain of command so that senior leaders can fully understand the ramifications of how strategic plans affect execution on the ground. Belief in the mission ties in with the fourth law of combat, decentralized command. The leader must not explain just what to do, but why. It is the responsibility of the subordinate leader to reach out and ask if they do not understand. Only when leaders at all levels understand and believe in the mission can they pass that understanding and belief to their teams so that they can persevere through challenges, execute, and win. And that is the end quote. And believe. Now, this is something that really goes awry. Back in the olden days and the older generations, it was assumed that the greatest... Unquestioning obedience to orders was the highest calling of the, the soldier, right? And it still is. In many cases, you don't have the freaking time to explain to your subordinates, you know, why is it that they're doing X, Y, or Z? Otherwise, you're just like a petulant child asking me, why, why, why? However, there's a utility to this. And there's a necessity to it as well. Ultimately, in the battlefield, you're asking men to put their lives on the line, life and limb, for your goals, for the things that you have com- accomplished or you want to accomplish. And it's usually them that are put in harm's way, not the leaders, often. And therefore, it is incumbent on you to explain why their sacrifice is necessary, why the risk is necessary, and why they must win. Not just being an option to win. It would be nice if X or Y or Z, but that they must do so. And you must have confidence in what your why And a lot of people, they think in this low Machiavellian way, not the high Machiavellian, which is the true to Machiavellian, but this petty Robert Greene type Machiavellian interpretation, which is you you should be able to deceive those under you. No, bullshit. A lot of you suck at lying. In fact, most people do. And ultimately, everyone has a really great bullshit-o-meter. Okay. Make sure you believe in why. Make sure if you don't understand, just as Jocko said, you deconstruct why you're doing it from higher. You're explaining the ramifications of the strategic implications of your operational or tactical level missions to your subordinate leaders and exude to them the necessity and the confidence that you have if they accomplish X or Y, that Z will be accomplished as well and that it will be in their favor as well. Field Marshal Montgomery from World War II, a British officer, had this great quote, and I read you now. Every soldier must know, before he goes into battle, how the little battle he is to fight fits into the larger picture. And now, I know that sounds ridiculous. It sounds like a reinstitution of what I'm just saying. However, it's important for you to understand that this is the precept that actually makes mission-type tactics successful. It gives your subordinate leaders the latitude to act to accomplish your commander's intent, which is what is exactly happening. If you explain explain your commander's intent, you are able to, first of all, give the resolution necessary to your subordinates, and two, give them the latitude if the exact tactical or scheme of maneuver that you've set out for them doesn't work, if the plan doesn't work, which will often not, right? Uh, you know, plans are useless, but planning is, planning is essential. Well, this is exactly this case where basically if you're unable, if you're executing a mission and something arises where the original scheme of maneuver wouldn't have worked out, ultimately you're, you're understanding, okay, I'm trying to achieve, I'm trying to peel a potato, right? I came up with the inability to get a peeler, you know, your original peeler or, or an electric peeler. And so I'm going to use a knife. It's no big deal. And this was one of, a major point of departure from previous iterations of warfare, where unless if you were doing by the numbers, by the exact plan from high command, you couldn't execute the mission that you were set out to do. 
This played out strongly in World War One, but it played out in juxtaposition to commander's intent and mission-type tactics in World War II, where the French were taken with their pants down because they were still operating on this top-down, micromanagey-type philosophical, unthinking warfare, while, of course, the other side was basically operating under mission-type tactics. The Wehrmacht was able to adapt and overcome and exploit situations which allowed them to succeed on the battlefield. But most importantly, they understood not just the scheme of maneuver, but the necessity, the necessity to win. Okay? And it's that confidence, that belief in your own mission, unquestioning belief. And I know that there are going to be many times where you're going to be told to do something that you think is stupid. And I get it. There are many missions or jobs or things that you have to be doing that you at first don't believe in. It's necessary for you to put that shit away, put it away, box it in a freaking backpack, and start believing. Make yourself believe and truly believe, not just like an unthinking moron, but make it work. Inductively understand the situation. Make it your mission, your ethos, your core conviction to see it through, see it manifest in the world. And I can promise you, your team and yourself will perform because of that. Now, that finished belief, and we're finally going on to our final precept here, just with going back to, of course, Leif Babin. Principle, and I'm reading from Extreme Ownership again principle. Ego clouds and disrupts everything. The planning process, the ability to take good advice, and the ability to accept constructive criticism. It can even stifle someone's self of self-preservation. Often, the most difficult ego to deal with is your own. Everyone has an ego. Ego drives the most successful people in life, in the SEAL teams, in the military, in the business world. They want to win, to be the best. That is good. But when ego clouds our judgment and prevents us from seeing the world as it is, then ego becomes destructive. When personal agendas become more important than the team and the overarching mission success, performance suffers and failure ensues. Many of the disruptive issues that arise within any team can be attributed directly to a problem with ego. Implementing extreme ownership requires checking your ego and operating with a high degree of humility, admitting mistakes, taking ownership, and developing a plan to overcome challenges are integral to any successful team. Ego can prevent the leader from conducting an honest, realistic assessment of his or her performance and the performance of the team. In the SEAL teams, we strive to be confident, but not cocky. We take tremendous pride in the history and legacy of our organization. We are confident in our skills and are eager to take on challenging missions that others cannot or aren't willing to execute. But we aren't, we aren't, excuse me, we can't ever think we are too good or to fail that our enemies are not capable, deadly, and eager to exploit weaknesses. We must never get complacent. This is where controlling the ego is most important. End quote. So, the example here, or rather, the lesson, is something that goes really kind of under the radar for most people. If you come from a certain slavish tradition that completely wants to destroy the ego, that's bad too. Because the ego is the motivation. Whether you want to admit it or not, the best performers, just like he said, and from antiquity, are motivated by the ego. But motivation should never be your means. You shouldn't be moving by the means of ego. You should be moving by the, t the teamwork effort, by humility. So does that make sense? The principle should be ego, but your means should be flexible. You should be humble to achieve that, to be gr become a great leader, to become a Napoleon, that itself requires humility. That itself requires understanding. To own up to mistakes. To own up to laxity and failures on your own part. To be able to look back and reflect on your actions. 
on who you are as a man, as a legionary, or so on, and say, no, I was messed up. This needs to be fixed. And this goes really right now into politics. And I think this is the best corollary because ultimately we blame everyone else, but we can't see that it is our own fault. And I always make the case that life isn't a mathematical equation. Often it is about strength and about overcoming adversity, right? Now, my parable is always this. Life isn't a mathematical equation. It's a boxing ring, right? It's a boxing match. And if you lose a match, it is not the opponent that is evil. It's not the opponent that is, uh, you know, like at fault. It's you. It's me. It's people that weren't capable of training harder, of being better at technique, of punching harder, of moving, of having better cardio, and so on. Once you as an individual performer, once you as a leader, as a family, as a patriarch, as a whatever it may be, this goes for ladies too, of course, that you, the, the 1% of you that are ladies, that happens to you too, okay? Ultimately, you've got to put your ego aside when it comes to flexibility. If you fail, it is not because the odds are insurmountable. It is because it's something inside that you have to overcome. It is you that has to take extreme ownership of your faults, know yourself, and seek self-improvement. That's a leadership principle from the Marine Corps, but it's applicable to everything in life. Do you understand? Now, that's the last precept. I'm not going to harangue you any further, and I apologize if I am saying things with certain vim and fervor that I had only reserved for other transmissions, but I think it's something that many of you, and myself included, are constantly needing of improvement, of realizing with humility, self-justification, that the things that are happening in the world that are for naught, the issues that are happening in the world because of our civilization, our nation, our teams, our families, ourselves, our own selves, we're falling apart not because of what's happening outside, but because of the lack of integrity and fortitude and strength and discipline inside. You fix those things and the world will unravel to you. Become a beacon of order and strength within. And the outside world will reflect that. It will become that. People want strength. They want someone on whom they can build off of. Be that beacon of strength for your team. Be that beacon of strength for your family. Be that beacon of strength for your nation. That is how we'll conquer the world. Legionaries, believe, fight, win. This is Lance, Sergeant Barnes, signing off.